0: Good morning, Four Corners. As we see our kids leave, we are reminded what a blessing it is to have to be in a church where I say this as a father to be in a church where our kids go back there, the little ones at least, up through third grade, and they are taught by teachers who love the Lord, who trust in His Word, and who are diligent to convey His Word to them. As we see them all leave, We think about their souls, and we think about the fact that the best thing we can do for our children is to feed ourselves. The best thing that we could possibly do for our kids is to be built up in our most holy faith, to be instructed in the truths of the gospel. What a blessing it has been over the last two weeks to revisit Christ's call to make disciples of all nations for the praise of God's name. I love that emphasis that Trey started out with two weeks ago, where he quoted Piper. And maybe that was something, you know, growing up that you didn't hear a lot. You, you hear about evangelism and missions for the sake of the lost, but but to focus on evangelism and missions for the praise of God's name, for the renown of God. On the earth, for the fact that there would be worshipers on the earth making much of God. So I'm thankful to Trey for those two very rich, sober, and indeed challenging sermons on Matthew 28 16 to 20, which has historically been called the Great Commission. But as Trey says, there are many commissions we find, and that is one of them there at the end of the Gospel. Of Matthew. In fact, all of Scripture really is a commission to go and to make known to people the glory of this God. And what a fitting glue to bind our time in Genesis together with our upcoming series on Romans. You'll see there uh, on the screens and then the passages that have been selected here for our edification as we're just uh, moving about here. We have these two passages. It is hard to select main passages from the book of Romans. We historically have put two of these posters up, and I want to thank Rob and Nazir for, for the work they did on these. But these were two of the passages that I think uh, most encapsulate Romans and are probably two of the most significant in the book. But what a fitting glue it was, Trey's two sermons, to, to put together our, our time in Genesis with now our time in Romans. A few days ago, it came to my attention that my very first sermon at Four Corners, when I first came to preach as a candidate, was exactly five years ago today. Just kind of funny. March 1st, 2015. I didn't know anyone at Four Corners except Sharon Cogburn and Ken Spear. I had emailed quite a bit with Sharon on the pastor search committee, and Ken and I had talked on the phone, and Ken picked me up at the airport and gave me a great introduction to Noonan and to the church. It was five years ago today that I first met the folks of Four Corners Church. So it is exciting for me, personally, as I reflect on this, exactly five years later, to be starting a series on this special book, the book of Romans, a book that has been very close to my heart for a long time. I hesitate and I'm reluctant to share this, especially in a sermon, but an older sister in the Lord very recently, through a private conversation just reflecting on this question, encouraged me not to hide it under a bushel, and so I will share it. I started memorizing Romans on December 14th, 2010. And by God's grace, I completed it on September the 4th, 2013. This has been a precious, precious companion to me over the last decade. And I feel immensely blessed to be able to now study it in depth together here with God's people at Four Corners Church. And I'll say this as well. What a blessing it is to be part of a church where the slow and careful exposition of God's Word is valued. I will say from a pastor's perspective that that is not the case everywhere. And though a pastor may desire to do that as he moves into a church, it is frequently the case that he is thwarted by various desires within the church and has to work very slowly to get to such a point. That was not the case for me. I started that day one because that had always been the practice of this local church. That is the DNA of Four Corners. We praise God for that, for his goodness and his grace, that the scriptures are held in that regard here among this people. So I'm thankful to be a part of that. I share this bit about memorizing Romans with the hope that some of you will be freshly encouraged, maybe even today by that testimony, will be freshly encouraged in your own memorization of Scripture. So though reluctant to share it as this older and wise lady in the Lord told me this is an opportunity for the church to be stirred up to consider what it would look like for you to memorize part or whole of this very, very special book. And I'll tell you, there's, there's a great way to do it. There's a great method to do it. There's a pastor in First Baptist Durham who uh, I originally heard him come to my seminary and he shared this and I tried a few different passages and it always flopped. And somehow, by God's grace, it worked out when I moved to Edinburgh and had some time there to do it. But his name is Andy Davis, and he puts out a plan for how it is you can go through and memorize large chunks of Scripture. And in fact, uh, he, I think, has memorized Isaiah and Matthew. I mean, to memorize Isaiah is just inconceivable. But if you are interested in this, please come and see me, but I would encourage you to make this a part of your life, if it's not already. So, why do I call Romans a premier book? I mean, some of us just know that. We say it intuitively, oh yeah, Romans, great book of the Bible. But why? Why is Romans considered a premier book? All of God's Word, we know, is important And we would want to steer away from having a canon within a canon. Maybe you've heard that language, you know, uh, certain groups uh, of Christians throughout history have taken a particular author, a particular set of books, a particular book, and have made that the be-all and end-all. Well, we know that you interpret Scripture with Scripture and that all Scripture is inspired by God. We need the Old Testament, the New Testament from Genesis to Revelation. And so we would want to avoid any kind of thinking that says there is a canon within a canon. And yet, nonetheless, we cannot deny the fact that Romans throughout church history has played a very important role. This letter, this epistle to the Christians at Rome written by the Apostle Paul has been particularly significant. So let me give just a few reasons, or I could say examples, reasons or examples, why it is that, that one would say Romans is so important or so significant or why we would say it is the premier book, really, of the Bible. Well, first, we have its pivotal role in the lives of key historical figures in church history. And I would even go so far as to say this, key historical figures through whom God did key historical things or, or, or moved in particular ways. There are many that I could cite here, but two in particular stand out. First is the conversion of Augustine or St. Augustine, however you've referred to him. Augustine of Hippo. Augustine was uh, a man who had, was very, very brilliant, very intelligent, very intelligent, he had gone off, and his, his mother was a Christian, his father was not. He had gone off and studied and become uh, enamored with various forms of philosophy, but particularly he had become enamored, enamored with his lusts for women. He was, he lived a, a sexually illicit life. He loved that kind of life, and, and as he worked through, as the Lord worked through those philosophical obstacles to his mother's faith, to Christianity, it was the the last holdout was his lusts of the flesh, those things which he just did not want to give up. And it was this story, you can read of it in his uh, confessions, but this story of how he's out one day just weeping and crying, and these children are playing this game. Take up and read, they say, take up and read. And he goes into his house. They're playing a game where those, that, those words are used. He goes into his house and he picks up the scriptures and his eyes fell on the first thing that was there and it was a text from Romans 13. And it was with Romans 13, the very end of that chapter, that God, the Holy Spirit, converted Augustine's heart and all have agreed throughout church history that there is no more significant theologian since Paul himself than Augustine over 1,500 years ago. Just as some say that all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato, uh, many will say all of Christian theology is a footnote to Augustine, constantly referring back to him. Romans, the tool in the hand of the Spirit. What about Luther? Luther, Martin Luther, the one who ignited the Protestant Reformation It was his wrestling with Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The righteousness of God through faith. Justification. How is it that a sinner can be right before God? Well, it wasn't through all of his monkish practices or his many confessions. It was through the righteousness of Christ imputed to one's account. And it was through his meditation on Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, that he is converted like Augustine through Romans 13. This is not to mention the likes of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, or John Wesley, or many others who have been radically transformed by this book we are about to enter. So that's first. Second there is the attention given to it by preachers and writers if you i was riding in the car yesterday with my son jake and he i had a bunch of commentaries in the back seat and he picked up one that was about 950 pages and then he picked up another one and he was saying oh this one win, this one wins daddy cuz it was 1140 pages so this one was huge and he was you know Messing the binding up, which I get a little bit, uh, a little bit fussed about. So I had to reach back there and grab that, put it up in the front seat. At which point the the, uh, little beeper for need to put your seatbelt on comes on because it's so heavy in the passenger seat. All of that to say, how many things have been written about Romans? How many words, how much ink has been spilled over this book? but particularly the preaching of it. And here I want to just cite two individuals. There's, there are many that I could point to, but when we think about the attention given to it by preachers, I'll just mention one you all, I, I imagine, are aware of, and that is John Piper. John Piper recently, I think he started in the late 90s and went on for over eight and a half years. He spent walking through, studying through, working through Paul's epistle to the Romans. And if you think eight eight and a half years is bad, go back before that to the 1950s. And the famed expositor Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 13 years walking through Paul's epistle to the Romans. Now let me just say, I don't want you to worry Although I'm making no promises, but I am saying that I'm not suggesting that this will be our course. Don't average 13 and and 8.5 together and get where we'll be. That's not not my point here. My point here is only to say that the significance of Romans, its importance, is demonstrated by the amount of attention that has been given to it by notable preachers. And those are just two recent ones, relatively recent. I have a third reason, or a third example. It's significance for Christian theology. This is why the first two are what they are. Martin Luther wrote this about Romans. Listen carefully to this description, this encouragement. He says, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read. Listen to this. It can never be read or pondered too much. You just can't overdo it when it comes to Romans. what he's saying. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Shortly after that, John Calvin wrote his commentary on Romans, and he, in that, wrote a preface to it. He said this, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Now that's a lot coming from a man who wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible. The the premier theologian of the Protestant Reformation. And we could even say since the Protestant Reformation. And some have said the, the, the greatest expositor, expounder of Scripture in the history of the church. He says it is an entrance by which we come to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. That is to say that if Genesis is the foundation for our view of God and all of Scripture, that Romans is the high point and is itself our gateway for understanding what it is that the Bible as a book, as one story is about. And I hope these passages will, to some degree, convey that. Let me give you just two more William Tyndale, the English reformer, wrote that it is a light and a way unto the whole Scripture. And so here you have echoed what Calvin wrote. It is is what gives us an understanding of all of the Bible. This is biblical theology 101 and at its height. Douglas Moo, who has been regarded by some as the, the writer of the most significant contemporary commentary. In fact, Tom Schreiner, a man I greatly respect, he, he himself wrote a, a commentary on the book of Romans. He refers to Douglas Moo's commentary as the best commentary on Romans. And he Moo says this, Romans is Paul's summary of the gospel that he preaches. So, Why is it that Romans is so treasured? Why is it that Romans has had such a significant place in the history of the church? Because it is the summary of the gospel that the premier apostle himself preached, which itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans is powerful because the gospel is powerful. And nowhere in the Bible is it taken up so extensively and so deeply as in Paul's letter to the Romans. So with these introductory things being said, I think we have a simple prayer. On day one of this journey, this is my prayer for us, simply that our knowledge of And love for the gospel explicitly and clearly and precisely and comprehensively understood would grow exponentially and that many would be saved. That many people would be saved through this time in Romans. And I mean there, people who maybe are coming and you say uh, you're a Christian, but you're not. Maybe you, would, you, you grew up in Georgia, and in Georgia everybody's a Christian, right? No. No. Maybe you grew up in church, so you're a Christian. Your mom and dad are Christian. No. You must be converted. You must be redeemed. You must repent of sin and trust Christ. And so my prayer for you out there, who, you who are not a Christian... You are a a cultural Christian, a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. Maybe your wife's a Christian or your husband's a Christian, but you're not. My prayer is this, and for our children, that many would be saved. And beyond that, that those of us who are built up in our experience, explicit gospel in the clearness of the gospel, clarity of the gospel, that we would go out into our world, into our workplaces and our neighborhoods, and that we would share an explicit, powerful gospel, and that many would be saved. So there are many ways people could come to faith, but we pray that it would happen as we set out on Romans So what about its background? This is where every preacher can stumble... Give page after page of background material before you even get to a book. It's kind of hard to start a new book because you wonder, what do I say? I mean, there's just so many things that could be said. There is one commentator who, who wrote a separate book called Introducing Romans, and that was 468 pages. And, that's to, and by the way, that's the introductory book to the 1140-page commentary that I was referring to. All of that to say, there's much that could be said here. But rather than go into great detail at this point, I want to quickly situate it and then get into the text itself. The Apostle Paul is writing from Corinth around AD 57 to the Christians at Rome, Christians living in various house churches, tenement churches. Uh, these are uh, a kind of a, a configuration of, of Christian groups that are one church, essentially, in Rome. Christians in Rome. Rome, as you know, is the capital city of the Roman Empire, the most significant city in the world. This comes at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, and if you want to situate this in Acts, which is always, there's always a desire to do that when we read Paul's epistles, we want to figure out where does this go in the book of Acts, and it goes probably at the beginning of chapter 20. So when you read Acts at the beginning of chapter 20, it's during that period, that stay in Greece, in Corinth, that Paul writes this, probably around A.D. 57, Having completed his missionary work in the east, and Paul will describe that in Romans chapter 15, he's planted these churches all throughout the east, in Macedonia, Greece, Asia Minor, all these churches sent out from Antioch, and having done all of this work in the east, he is now looking westward. Paul is now looking to the west, to Rome, but not just to Rome, he's looking to Rome and beyond. He writes to a church he did not plant and has never visited. It's not like Corinth or Ephesus or some of these other churches where Paul is instrumental in planting the church and giving rise to it. Paul has never visited this church and he did not plant it. This is very introductory in nature for him and his ministry. He wants to make clear the gospel that he preaches And he asks that they would give him support in a future missionary journey further west to Spain. If someone were to come here and and ask Four Corners Church to support them in their mission, as elders of the church, one of the most important things that we're going to ask is, uh, well, what is your theology? What do you believe? What do you teach? What are you going on mission for? What are you going on mission to convey? And so Paul here in this letter which is asking at the end of it for, for support in going to Spain. He wants to make clear what it is that he believes and what it is that he preaches. We'll discuss this more. But this appears to be a church comprised largely of Gentiles, but with some Jewish presence. And remember those 468 pages I mentioned? Well, part of that is because there are a lot of disagreements about Romans. And part of this is because anyone who goes to get a PhD has to find something new to write on. And so, in some respects, it's kind of endless, all the different things. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes was right. To the writing of books, there is no end. So many things that can be said, and so many things maybe that could go unsaid, but much, much discussion. And one of the key issues of discussion is the back and forth between is this largely a Gentile or largely a Jewish audience to which Paul writes. And and the consensus has been, and I think has been demonstrated well, is that it is largely Gentile with some Jews. Romans, or Rome, the church at Rome, was likely established as a result of returning Jews who were converted at Pentecost. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts, when Peter is preaching and all of those people are there and they're converted, well, well, there's all of those people groups that are mentioned. Uh, they're, they're Jews who are from those places. So they're not people groups, but they're Jews from those places who've come to Rome, to, uh, to Jerusalem, to celebrate Pentecost. And in verse 10, we get this little note. He lists all these people from these places. And then he says, Acts 2.10, And visitors from Rome. So at the very beginning of the apostolic preaching, the day of Pentecost, there are some folks from Rome, some Jews from Rome who have come and who stand there and who cry out to Peter, what must we do to be saved? They were cut to the heart. Well, some of those sliced up hearts went back to Rome. And there the church of Rome began. But probably the best way to introduce Romans is to let it introduce itself in the opening verses. Our first several sermons will focus on the greeting. So if you have your Bible opened up to Romans, you can see there that the first seven verses are a distinct unit. And it's a greeting. It's packed This will introduce us to Paul, to his purposes, and to his audience. So there's really no need to spend all of this time introducing you to the book before we get in it, because as we go through it, we'll be able to see unfolding for us who Paul is, what his purposes are, and who his audience is. This greeting is the longest and most theologically packed of any of Paul's letters. And because so much is anticipated here in this greeting, we're going to spend a little bit of time on it. And you won't be surprised to know that this greeting is one sentence in the apostle Paul's Greek. That is that is how Paul writes. It's a deep ocean going through Paul. And it's, it's not just that all of this is one sentence, but that there's just so much here. Read it quickly and you're just like overwhelmed with all of the, the words and the relationship of the phrases and the clauses, the, the, the heavy theology packed here. All one good, long, strong sentence. We'll consider the greeting under three headings. So this is just introducing us to the next several sermons. Three headings here, the man... The message and the mission. That's what we find in these first seven verses. The man behind the letter. And then we have the message in the letter. And then finally the mission of the letter. So today, the title for the sermon is The Man Behind the Letter. And yes, I have to do it part one. The man behind the letter. And we'll spend our time looking at verse one. If you would please stand with me. for this reading of God's word. We'll focus on verse one, but we'll read all of verses one to seven now. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessings. Let's ask that God would illuminate his word, that he would hold our attention, and that he would work mightily among us, just as he did in Augustine's life, just as he did in Luther's life, and that he would do this week after week after week. Father, we praise you for this privilege that we have to go through this epistle as a church. Father, we thank you that we are gathered here together as a family, a local church. We are committed to each other. We are covenanted together here. And I pray for those, Lord, who have not covenanted with this local church. Perhaps some among us who have been visiting for a very long time and have not become members here. Father, I pray that you would stir their heart to this very biblical and very serious commitment to belong in truth to a church, to this local church, Lord, or perhaps to another. But Father, not to just be on the periphery, but to be in the middle with the people of God, in the dirt, down in the ditches, serving and loving and covenanting, pledging, commitment. Lord, we praise you that you've caught us together. I pray for those who are among us who are unsaved. Lord, would you show them who Christ is? Would you show them that all their efforts to please you through their cultural Christianity or their moral living will mean nothing before your judgment throne? God, would you show us all that Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the hope of of sinners. God, would you show us that that repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God revealed to us is the only hope for man. We pray, God, that you would stir our hearts that we would as Christians would treasure this gospel more than we ever have and that you would just rock this church for your glory through this time. We pray. Upset our selfishness, upset our our laxity, upset our idolatry. Lord, turn over the tables of our hearts, Jesus, just as you did when you went into the courts of the temple. Would you overturn the tables in our hearts and establish yourself as our supreme treasure and king? We ask you to do this great work among us, even today and beyond, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this verse, verse 1, gives us a very clear outline. It's helpful when you get a very clear outline from the author. And it's just laid out right there for you. Three descriptive phrases for this man introduced as Paul. He identifies himself in terms of three things. And you'll see these on the screen. We're going to cover the first of them today. And then we'll cover the second two next week. But he defines himself, he identifies himself, describes himself in these ways. As Paul churns in his mind, who am I? This is his answer. And this is how he wants to be introduced to these people who, well, many of whom he's never seen. He does know some, we see from Romans 16, but he wants to introduce himself to them in this way. In terms of ownership, office, and objective. So first we're going to look at ownership, and that's what we'll do today. The very first word we get is a name, Paul, the author of the letter. This is the author of more books of the New Testament than any other. He's written 13 letters. He's left us 13 letters, three of which, or rather four of which, written to individuals: Philemon, First and Second Timothy, and Titus, and the rest are written to churches. And we are introduced to him at the end of Acts chapter seven. Some time ago, we had Trey preach for us on this passage and Where Stephen is stoned. And that's where this man Saul is first introduced to us. And he's introduced to us under one of his names, Saul. He is Saul and Paul. A man involved in the persecution of Christians. And one of the things you may have heard is that Saul's name was changed to Paul. Kind of like Jacob's name is changed to Israel or Abram's name is changed to Abraham. Well, there's really no evidence to support that. That idea that that once uh, he's he's Saul before his conversion and Paul afterwards. It is true that once he begins to go out and preach, he is called Paul. But what we find in Acts 13.9 says that Saul was also called Paul. This suggests that that was his name at the beginning. He had always had both of these names, Saul and Paul. He was a devout Jew, descended from Jacob's son Benjamin. We were just in Genesis, and you remember Benjamin, the youngest of Jacob's sons, the one who came to Joseph. Joseph wanted to see and have him brought there the second son of Rachel. Well, After Benjamin had sons, and they had sons, and they had sons, at some point down the road, Paul was born, a descendant of Benjamin. But he also happened to be a Roman citizen. So he's a descendant of Benjamin, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the tribe of Benjamin, but he is also a Roman citizen. He's a Roman citizen at birth. His parents had acquired citizenship, and Paul is born a citizen of the empire, which, by the way, was a priceless thing back then. And on top of that, he was from the culturally rich city of Tarsus, steeped in Greco-Roman culture. From Galatians 1 and Philippians 3, we learn that Paul was a first-class student of Judaism. So you think about if there, were, if there were to be a school for Jews, Paul was the valedictorian. He was at the very, very top, the best teacher's. The best performance on his his exams, he was at the very top, a first-rate student of Judaism, studying under the Pharisees. He himself, a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Oh, we meet those guys in the Gospels. Woe to you, Pharisees, Jesus says repeatedly. Paul was right there. In the middle of that. You remember back in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said. But I say to you. The problem was the Pharisees had all of these traditions. And they had come up with all of these, all of these things that they were to do. And so rather than clinging to the law. As they said they were doing. They were clinging to men's Traditions. They had set aside the law of God and were clinging to man's traditions. What Jesus comes along and says is, no, 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 you've got it wrong. This is what the law really teaches and I fulfill that. Those are Jesus' primary opponents throughout the Gospels and here we see Paul is just right in the middle with those guys. A Pharisee excelling above his peers. And to add another notch to his belt, He became a lead persecutor of the Christian movement. This movement, how could they? That declared that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. He makes himself equal with God. Says he is the Christ. The peoples all follow after him. This nobody who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Who is this man? This Jesus sect, Paul is intent on wiping it from the face of the earth. And then something happens, something quite dramatic. As Mike read to us earlier, something happens. He too met the risen Christ. Just as the disciples of Jesus, the 12 disciples of Jesus, or I should say the 11 disciples of Jesus, met the risen Christ and many others, over 500, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, saw the risen Christ, Paul too sees the risen Christ, but as one untimely born, not in the normal course of events, but after Christ had already ascended into heaven, this is what happens. He's on the road to Damascus to gather up more Christians, those those evil Jesus sect people, and to drag them and put them in prison, to persecute them, to bind them. And as he's on his way, Christ himself appears to Paul, Saul from heaven in glorious light, temporarily blinding him. And it's interesting what, Jesus says to him, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, we raise the question there, what are you talking about, Jesus? Uh, Saul isn't persecuting you. You're at the right hand of the Father. You've been seated at the right hand of the Father. You've passed through the heavens. But that reminds us uh, that for Paul, and he'll, we'll find this later in Ephesians, the church is what? The body of Christ. And so the body of Christ is being persecuted. Christ himself says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Saul, or Paul, is at once converted and commissioned, all in the same. Ananias, who is to receive the temporarily blinded Paul and care for him, is told by the Lord. This is what the Lord says to Ananias, who is afraid, by the way. To have anything to do with Paul, Saul. The Lord says to him this, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is Jesus's commission for this man, Paul. This Saul or Paul is commissioned by Jesus to be, as Romans 11 13 says, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul explains this a little bit in Romans 15, 16. What does it mean to be an apostle to the Gentiles? We'll talk about that next week, but he explains it in Romans 15. He says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is about. This is what it means for him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This is Christ's commission. And here, in Romans 1, after, two, after over two decades of mission and ministry and suffering as a Christian, which we can read about in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles, if you want to read about, about Paul's sufferings, go read 2 Corinthians If you want to read about Paul's life and his mission and all that he does, read through the book of Acts, particularly after chapter 13. But after over two decades of mission, ministry, and suffering, Paul writes and introduces himself to these Roman Christians. So here, we need to pause. We need to pause and consider something. Why is it that preachers in the past have spent several sermons just preaching on the word Paul. I'm not going to do that. But why? Why would you do that? I think at the heart of it is this reason. I'll read to you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones as he reflects on the fact that this Paul we just talked about, this Jew writes this letter, To these largely Gentile Christians. See, uh, that just flies right over our heads. Oh yeah, Paul. Right, those of us who've grown up in the church, it's just Paul. Radical. That this man would write this letter to these Gentile people, largely. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. This is one of the most amazing things that has ever happened. More amazing than the epistle to the Romans More amazing even than the epistle itself, he's saying, is the fact that Paul ever wrote it to them. Here was this man, a rigid, rabid, nationalistic Jew, hating the Lord Jesus Christ and everything connected with him. Regarding him as a blasphemer, trying to destroy the Christian church, going to Damascus, breathing out threatenings and slaughter in order that he might exterminate the little church there. Then you remember how he saw the risen Lord and how his whole life was changed and how he became the mighty defender of the faith and the apostle to the Gentiles. This is truly amazing. There are at least three things to capture our amazement here. I want to just pause on this for a moment before we move on past this word Paul. Three things that Paul should tell us, implications for us. Number one, there is incredible evidence For the veracity of Christianity, for anyone who cares to seek it out, as I've said many times, and we'll get to this apologetically in Romans uh, chapter one, towards the end of the chapter, where it talks about man suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. People aren't aren't unbelievers or non-Christians because they have failed to be intellectually persuaded. Because the right arguments have not been brought forward. They've not sat down and had a coffee with William Lane Craig or John Lennox. And if only they would, then they would know and they would believe. It's not because they remain intellectually unpersuaded. It's because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness and hate God and love self. That's the reason people reject the gospel. That's the reason people reject Christianity. Know that yourself if you're here. There's abundant evidence for the veracity of Christianity. The most incredible movement that's ever taken place on planet earth in space and time. And part of the evidence for the veracity of Christianity is the fact that this so unlikely convert became the premier apostle to the Gentiles. This nationalistic Jew. It, did Paul just make this up? Did he just scratch his head and decide one day, I'm going to join this movement of people who are entirely outcast from everything I've ever been trained to know and do. I'm going to leave uh, the confines of, of traditional, solid, stable society. And I'm going to sign up to be beaten and to be stoned almost to death and ultimately have my head chopped off by the emperor of Rome. That's It's ridiculous. Paul's very existence as a historical figure is itself part of the evidence. If you want that, if that's what you're after, look here. Many bits here to take up your time if you truly care. First, evidence for Christianity. Second, the power of God to save. God can save anyone. He can save anyone. He saved Paul. He saved Paul. If God can save Paul, He can save your mom and dad. He can save your grown kids. He can save anyone. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the same power that came upon Paul from heaven comes in the hearts of men when the gospel is proclaimed. Behold the power of God. The mighty hand, the mighty arm of the God of Israel as he saves this very unlikely man. Third, the grace of God towards sinners. In Paul, we don't just see the power of God to save, we see the grace of God that he would save Paul, this murderer. This one who killed his people. There is Stephen, the holy man, filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And he is telling of all the wondrous things God has done and the wickedness of the present generation in rejecting the God who cannot be contained by a temple made with hands. And there's Paul, standing there, complicit, part of it. A murderer, deserved to be in hell, just like you and me. But God saved him. Not because of what he did, as he writes in Titus 3. Not because of what he did, but because of his mercy. He regenerated his heart and he called him and he changed him. Made him the most significant Christian in the history of the church. Evidence for Christianity, the power of God to save. The grace of God towards sinners. So that's Paul. How does this unlikely convert, this apostle to the Gentiles, describe himself? Well, he begins this way, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Why these words? Why this language? Why begin this way? This is also the language of James and Peter and Jude and John in Revelation. Is this... Merely some kind of Christian formality? Is this just something that the leaders of Christianity do? Is it just some formal way of referring to an apostle? Oh yeah, slave of Christ Jesus I am. No. It is a very self-conscious, self-designation packed with significance. And what I want to do in our remaining time is I want to give you two sides of its significance. And this is where we're going to stop today. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's really all we can do today. But I want to give you two sides of the significance of this language of a servant of Christ Jesus. And I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then I'll explain them. So first, it's humility. And second, it's continuity. We need to see the humility and the continuity here. First, humility. It is striking that this is the very first thing that Paul has to say about himself. And especially to the Roman ear. I mean, can you imagine what it would have sounded like to maybe a Roman who's present when this letter first gets read, and they hear this leader calling himself a slave of someone? To the Roman ear, that would have been repulsive. Slaves were nothing. A slave could be killed by its master and just be treated as property. It's an it. A slave is an it in Roman society. Nothing more. And so this language of being a slave would have been repulsive to the Roman ear. He knows some of the Roman Christians, as I said before, chapter 16 says, but he's never been there to visit. He's never been to their various house churches. So he wants to describe himself. He wants these people to understand who he is and how he views himself in the fullest terms. And this involves, for Paul, first and foremost, that he is a slave of Christ. So let me ask you a question. Is this the first thing you would say about yourself? It's the first thing Paul had to say about himself. Lonnie, a slave of Christ. Is that how you think of yourself? See, when we fundamentally see ourselves that way, it radically changes everything we do, think, and say. This is the identity of every single Christian, most fundamentally, rock bottom, a slave of Christ Jesus. What does it involve? Well, it involves most fundamentally purchase or ownership, and that's why I've got the word ownership here. That's the big idea, to be a slave of someone. Before we go into it in any more detail, we know that it involves ownership. He, is, he belongs to Christ. Christ owns Paul. Listen to what Paul says about the Christian life in 1 Corinthians 7.23. You were bought with a price. Christian. You are a slave of Christ purchased by his blood. That's who you are as a Christian. Acts 20, 28, Christ obtained us with his own blood. You know, we like to talk about the blood of Christ. We like to talk about his redemption. But we really don't like to to talk about the fact that it it is with that redemption, liberation, with that blood that he owns you. He owns you. You are not your own. You do not have the right to do your own thing. Christian, Christ owns you. So it involves ownership, but it also involves obedience, which is entailed in the idea of ownership. Listen to the way the centurion in Matthew 8-9 describes his relationship to his servant. Talking with Jesus, he says, To my servant... I say, do this, and he does it. Well, we quickly go over that passage, because the passage is not really about that. It is about his faith in Jesus and Jesus' authority. But it's very important for understanding what lies at the heart of being a servant or a slave is that you do what you're told. Period. That is what it means to be a servant. It is fundamental Obedience. Romans 6.16, Paul reiterates this. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. In other words, Paul is defining slavery. He says, to be a slave is to be in a situation of obedience. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He will go on to say. So it involves being owned it involves obedience but it involves a desire to please him do you have a desire to please christ i mean just let's just get basic here do you desire to please christ do your thoughts ever go to christ that's one way basically to know whether you're a believer or not do you want to please christ this is what paul said galatians 1:10 for i am now seek for i am i now seeking the approval of man or of god or am i trying to please man Listen to this language. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So what does it mean to be a servant of Christ? It means that you have set aside, Christian, pleasing man. You just, you passed that. You, you've gone beyond that. That's the old you, man-pleasing. But so you get glory from man. Because if you please men, you get glory from men. You satisfy men, and that feels really good. You, you put that behind you if you're a Christian, Man-pleasing is the old you. Now it's Christ-pleasing. In short, this is total renunciation of self to follow Christ. Remember Jesus, what he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. To the early disciples, follow me. This is total renunciation of self. It is the hallmark of every Christian. So let me just ask you this morning as we think about the unsaved among us. Who reigns in your heart? Self or Christ? Self or Messiah Jesus? One of those reign. You know, as Christians, we all struggle with selfishness. As Mike prayed earlier, selfishness is just always just coming up, rearing its ugly head. But does it reign in your life? Or have you been transformed? Have you become new? And now Christ is supreme. But let me say this. If this slave of Christ language makes you a little uncomfortable. Which should tell you something. If it does. But this slave of Christ we need to understand. Is also one whom. Well let me say it this way. Consider this. About our relationship to Christ. The one whom we serve as slave is himself our friend and became our servant. Look at that. It's, he's not just, this, this is not tyranny. This is not like Islam. This is not where you have the, uh, uh, this kind of just pure authority. Obey. This is, this is a God who came into our world, who took on our flesh and who calls us friends. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And then listen to this language of Jesus. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not tyranny, it is redemption. Our slave master Our master, our Lord, has become our friend and our servant. What an incredible thing the Christian gospel is. As we finish this morning, I want to draw you to one other side of this. Significance of servant of Christ Jesus. First, humility, which is obvious. But second, continuity. This is perhaps not so obvious, so stay with me. It is interesting that Paul calls himself here a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus because in some ways, this language is not new at all. Throughout the Old Testament, we have individuals who play a key role in God's redemptive plan and they are referred to as servants of the Lord. Servants of Yahweh. Abraham is called a servant of the Lord. Moses, Joshua, David, and prophets. Here's what one commentator says the significance is, Richard Longenecker. He says this, that Paul, by referring to himself in this way, is signaling his own prophetic consciousness. Here's my point. As we finish, just stay with me a bit longer. Here's my point. In other words, with this language, Paul is connecting himself to God's story going all the way back through Genesis to the beginning. Through Christ and the calling of his apostles, God has acted definitively in history like he did with Abraham, like he did with Moses and Joshua and the prophets. God has acted definitively in history through his servants, the servants of the Lord. Paul and his fellow apostles are like Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and the prophets in revealing and carrying out God's mighty deeds in history. But there's more. This is not just a spot on the map. This is not just a dot on the timeline. Not just another key moment in history. It is the fulfillment of everything that God had done before. And by saying servant of Christ, Paul is identifying Christ with Yahweh. Consider that. All throughout the Old Testament, servant of Yahweh, servant of Yahweh, servant of Yahweh. Now Paul comes along and says in continuity with that, servant of the Messiah, Christ Jesus. Christ is God. We find it here, folded ever so subtly even into this as he addresses His readers. God has moved in history. Not just as he did with Abraham and Moses and Joshua. God has entered history in the person of Christ Jesus. So as we finish, do you see yourself wrapped up in this grand story? What a wonderful story. We're just a spot on the map. We're just a little dot in history. But this is our story. If the Lord does not return for another 2,000 years, we're a spot in this story. When the, the story of God's work in the world is completed, if it were ever completed one day in glory, it would include us here now. You in your life, in your workplace, in your family. You're every bit as much a part of the story of God as these Romans receiving this letter, as Paul, and as the Old Testament servants of the Lord. Are you wrapped up in this grand story? We walk through the beginnings of it in Genesis. And now, as we set out to see its fulfillment in the proclamation of the gospel of God, is your heart in a state of awe at God and His plan? If it's not, pray. Ask that God would stir your heart to be in awe of all that God has done from Genesis to Revelation and that we can trace, as we go from Genesis, we can trace that to to Matthew 28 as, as Trey preached. We can see it through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We see it in our own lives. We pray that God would make us grateful are you grateful, and in a state of awe, that he would include you? Christian, never lose your wonder at that. Why you? Why you? Why me? Because of the will of God. That's it. There's nothing in you, Christian. There's nothing in me of merit that would cause God to look upon me and say, I think I'll choose him. Purely of God's grace. Are you in all that God would include you? That God would include this local church? What a privilege. What a blessing. What a responsibility. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your holy word. We ask now that it would sit upon our hearts as we leave here that we would not forget what we, have le- what we have heard here today that we would meditate on these words Paul a servant of Christ Jesus. So much here just in these words to consider. We praise you for what you have taught us are teaching us and will teach us through your word. God even this morning as I came through the living room to go into the kitchen and I saw my kids watching the Pilgrim's Progress movie. Lord, I thought about that sword that Christian raised up against Apollyon and how we are reminded that it is with this sword that we will defeat him. We praise you, God, as Paul tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And here we have it before us. Would we take delight in it? it? Would we wield it against the devil and fight for our families and fight for our purity, fight for our hope, fight for our joy and contentment in the gospel and fight for our obedience to Christ, our master. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.